It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. It's very easy to stereotype, but once you know people, you can do one of two things. You can either fall back on, oh, but some of my best friends are. Oh, so true. Which, of course, is that that doesn't help at all, because when you say some of my best friends are, what you're saying is, well, look at me. I'm so, you know, Mm -hmm. give me two points, pat on the back for me for being friendly with some of them or I'm friendly with the good ones, but not the other ones, you know, that kind of thing. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We got a packed agenda today. Woo! The news has not stopped this week, so we are going to do a quick tour through Paul Manafort's updated sentence and legal troubles. We're going to talk about Beto O'Rourke's announcement that he's running for president. We're going to talk about Aunt Becky and Lynette and the college admissions scandal. 
And then we are very excited to share our conversation with Professor Deborah Lipstadt with you about anti-Semitism in America. So, Sarah, we got to just like get into it here. Yeah, we got to dive right in. We don't have time for any niceties. Paul Manafort's second sentence has been delivered by Judge Amy Berman Jackson in Washington, Washington, D.C., He received an additional 43 months in prison. Unlike the first judge in his case, Judge Jackson was unpersuaded that Paul Manafort is just a really nice guy that got picked on. She had very harsh words for him. She delivered a pretty hefty sentence given all of the constraints on her by sentencing guidelines. And so he's going to spend some more time in prison. But wait, there's more. Additionally, Manhattan's district attorney has indicted Paul Manafort on 16 counts, including residential mortgage fraud, conspiracy, falsifying business records, and a scheme to defraud. The important thing about the New York state case is that the president cannot pardon people for state crimes. Well, and there's some concern that this would be violating double jeopardy and charging him for the same crime. So we'll see. Something tells me that they wouldn't indict him if they didn't feel like they had a good basis for moving forward, despite the double jeopardy concerns. So we'll see what happens with Paul Manafort. We have big news on the 2020 race on the Democratic side. The man who only goes by one name, Beto, is running. And it was quite the rollout, let me say. So everybody's just been hanging around, waiting and waiting. And here comes Vanity Fair with Beto in kind of a casual ranch vibe, right? Saying, I just was born for this. And then he did this weird video on this strange couch with like 1980s pillows. I'm I'm really struck by the scene of this video. I don't understand it. And I know that this is not like intellectual commentary, but I'm just going to say for a second, all of the buildup here, I thought his actual announcement was real bizarre. Yeah. It first got confirmed by a text message to a local television station. And then we had this video in which he is very hyped up. And then you have the... Vanity Fair piece, which is also a little fluffy, it's not smooth. Yeah, it's like it's very emotional. It's very it's not highly choreographed. And I get that's what people like about Beto. I think that's part of his appeal is people feel like they're getting the real deal. But I, if I'm being very honest, was a little put off by his tone and by his by the sort of celebrity nature of the rollout, by the lack of substance because mainly because like you said there was so much anticipation it took so long there was so much buildup and instead of saying I thought carefully about this here is why I'm the right person and here is my plan it was like you know Oprah begged him to and he just thinks he's born to do it and his wife's the one raising his kids anyway I don't know I just I was not feeling it I'm gonna be real honest I think Beto O'Rourke was a really good candidate to run for Senate in Texas. And I don't quite understand why after losing to Ted Cruz, but making huge gains in Texas for the Democratic Party, he didn't say, hey, that John Cornyn is up for reelection. Maybe I'll run against him. I think he would have been a really good candidate to continue working for a Senate seat in Texas and I just don't get the reason for being in on the presidential stage with him. I understand that people like him. I understand 
parts of why people like him. He is exceptionally good at talking about some really hard topics. Someone sent us a message on Instagram saying, I think he does what y'all do. And I think that's awesome. Also, I don't think I need to run for president. And I love you, Sarah, (laughs) but I don't think you're there either, right? Like, I think he could do so much good if he weren't trying to ride his own star power and instead just continuing to do the work in front of him. Yeah, it's just this this whole narrative of destiny and this is the moment and I'm born to take advantage of it. I'm just, look, I, I'm really gun shy about that. I'm really not into that. I don't want that to be the argument for why this is a better choice than Donald Trump, because for a large portion of America, that means absolutely nothing to them. Do I think it's energizing to the Democratic base? Yes. Do I think moderates and centrists care that you think you're born to do this? No, I do not. No, I do not. I feel like he's like kind of a generic Barack Obama with all the charismatic like public speaking appeal. But none of the I mean, Barack Obama did his homework and Barack Obama had a lot of substance to back up the sort of this is our moment destiny. And I'm not feeling that from Beto. Also, I got to be real up front. The same day he announced I had listened to Pete. I'm still practicing, so give me grace. Buttigieg, I think that's right, Um, on the town hall. I found him incredibly appealing. I found his answers really meaty and substance-driven. I like his life experience. I love that he is in the Midwest. I love that he's a mayor. I love that he's young. I love that he's gay and a soldier. Like, I just think there's so many things, and I love his outlook on so many of the problems facing the country. Be honest. You love that he's Episcopal. (laughs) I do love that. I didn't know that. I didn't know he was Episcopal. (gasps) Now I love him even more. I love him because he, I feel like the generational representation, like that he's a millennial, like speaks to me in a way that it's, that. like when he speaks, I feel represented in a way that I feel when, like Kristen Gillibrand, who's the only other person I've given money to, like when there's a woman speaking, I feel represented in the same way that the way he speaks about our generation, which is like a sort of an emotional appeal. I get it. But like, I loved his answer to should we impeach Donald Trump? And his thing is like, no, he, he, I want to see him defeated electorally. I think that's the best thing for our country. And I love that answer. So I don't know. I, he was really appealing to me in a way that Beto just isn't. So the right now, I'll just say my personal approach is I'm voting because they have to, they all have to have 65,000 individual donations to get on the debate stage. And so right now I'm spending my support getting people I want on the debate stage that I know might be close. So he got a donation for me. Gillibrand got a donation for me. Beto's clearly going to be fine. I think Kamala's going to be fine as far as the level of donation support. So we'll see, but I don't know, guys. I just don't know about Beto. I think that if you are drawn to Beto O'Rourke but aren't sure about him as a presidential candidate, Buttigieg is a really nice place to look because I think he also has the capacity to speak in a really inspiring way and a way that's authentic and a way that feels fresh and like you haven't heard it a million times before. Mm. But I have to be honest with you, and you guys know me, I love executive experience for people who are looking at the presidency. And when I think about a congressperson, you know, somebody who's been in the House of Representatives, it's not that I'm devaluing that experience, but that's a far cry from being an executive. Now, being mm-hmm. a mayor is, too. That's a real big leap. But Pete Buttigieg was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which I think gives him a real opportunity to speak to parts of the country that often don't feel represented when you have that kind of celebrity draw in the Democratic Party's nominee. 
He won re-election with 80% of the vote. After coming out of the closet. After coming out as gay because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana, this man walked right into the fire of the culture wars and came out Mm -hmm. with 80% popularity in his town. He increased the population of South Bend, Indiana, while he was the mayor. That's incredible. You know, parts of the Midwest right now, if you can keep the population flat, you're working a miracle. So to have 1% population growth while he was the mayor is really impressive. He did actual economic development, something we all love to talk about. He got some of that done. I mean, I think he just has more of a record to run on than Beto does with that ability to have really hard conversations that I think is Beto's biggest strength coming into this race. And look, I keep trying to put myself back in time to when Beto did the road trip with Will Hurd. And I was like, this is awesome. This is the leadership we need. This is the future. And I felt really strongly about him. But it's like he's shifted since then. Like, it doesn't feel the same to me. It doesn't feel like I have tapped. I mean, he definitely has tapped something. But this I'm born to do it is not I've tapped something and I feel like I need to to stand in this moment because the truth is the field is so crowded. There isn't this incredible necessity that we have to have Beto because we don't have any other good options. I mean, I guess that's why it feels so empty to me at this point in the process is it's sort of like what you're saying about Biden. We're not desperate for choices. We have a lot of really great choices. And so I think that's my kind of meh feeling. I think Biden is distinguishable in this way. To me, there is a better case for Biden than for Beto. While I think both of them would draw some of the same support, I think Biden could reasonably say to the country, don't you all want some steadiness after what we've just experienced? Don't you want a known quantity, both domestically and internationally? Let's bring somebody back to the wheel who can kind of right the ship and create a landscape where then somebody more disruptive can come in in a healthy way. But after what we've been through, I I just feel like Biden has an argument to make. And I don't quite understand what the argument for Beto is. I love you so much. I love that you keep making this argument. I do not think that's the argument Biden is going to make. Just P.S. Well, that's fine. He doesn't have to make it. But I'm just saying I'm not I'm not mad at Biden for considering this because I I do think it's reasonable. I also think that I'm not mad at Beto. Like, I don't I don't love the celebrity thing. I think it's really annoying the way he talks about himself. It's weird, though, that we were all like infatuated with him and today we're all angry with him. And I don't think it's a healthy thing. I just want to be conscientious because I have felt myself lately being way too flippant about what people would derogatively characterize as identity politics. I have been very flippant. And it is not that I think a straight white man brings nothing to the table and that I don't want to ever see another straight white man as the president or in any position of power generally. it is That is not what I mean. And I think that I talk about it that way sometimes in a way that's that's becoming what I don't want to become, trying to get away from that. So I want to be careful about that. It is not that I think Beto is doing something wrong here. I just don't, I can't find the lane for him 
in this crowded field. And it seems to me that the better lane and the lane that would eventually put him back in this field with a lot more to say is through the Senate. So let me speak with some self-awareness. Let me try for this. And let me be honest. I had very similar feelings about Barack Obama in 2007. Now, obviously, some of that was because I was working for Hillary Clinton and I didn't want him to win the nomination. I wanted her to win the nomination. But I did have a sense of like, I rolled my eyes. I felt like he didn't have enough experience. I sort of rolled my eyes at the destiny talk. And he slowly won me over. And now I love him so much. So perhaps Beto can do the same thing. But that remains to be seen. So I'm trying to keep an open mind because I did have a very similar reaction to Obama way back in the day. But I think through hard work, good staffing, and good leadership among his campaign, that's where it really turned around for me. And like I said, this rollout doesn't give me a lot of hope that that's going to happen with Beto, but we'll see. We'll see. We've got to move on to the story of the week, which is the college admission scandal. I know, Sarah, that you have been bursting at the seams to talk about this. Okay, listen, everybody, this is going to be like an hour and a half episode because the Deborah Lipstatic conversation is so important. We had to talk about Beto, but I need a lot of time to process this because it is so both bananas and not surprising. This is kind of how I felt about leaving Neverland. Oh, right. We all knew we had this crazy cultural problem, systematic problem in the case of college admissions. And we're all surprised now that it has bubbled up in a truly criminal way. (laughs) Like, I keep saying, like, I think this should be the moment where we all decide that college admissions in this country has jumped the shark. We've jumped the shark, everybody. Like, we've lost all sense of reality. The idea that there is, like, any meritocracy at play now is sort of even hard to stomach. So for those of you who perhaps live under a rock of some type, The largest college admissions fraud criminal case ever brought by the Department of Justice has come forth this week. Over like 50 adults have been charged. It all ran primarily through this one guy. He was a college admissions counselor, and he did everything from helping parents defraud SAT by paying test proctors, having people take the test, having false disabilities to get more time, or literally changing their answers on the SAT to paying college coaches to lie and say these students were athletic recruits, which gave them bonus points in the admission process. I mean, literally like photoshopping their faces on pictures of these kids playing sports they did not play. And you had the SAT people arrested, the college coaches arrested, and many parents, very, very wealthy people arrested, including famous actress Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin, also known as Aunt Becky from Full House, and her husband, the designer Massimo. So. The the celebrity aspect, I think, is really what kind of blew it, put it at the top of everybody's sort of, oh, my gosh, radar. But I think what is so upsetting to everyone is, like I said, no one really thought this was a fair process. And then to think that not only was it a fair process in which rich people have all kinds of legal ways, side note, I don't think these should be legal either, like donating to the college tons and tons of money, which is how Jared Kushner got into Harvard, or sort of backdoor but legitimate ways to game the system and get in 
to these highly competitive schools. And then on top of that, that wasn't good enough. They had to also cheat. They had to also pay people to get their kids into these competitive schools. And I just think everybody is furious, and rightly so. My initial reaction to this story was I'm not at all surprised this was happening, Mm -hmm. and I'm shocked that it's being prosecuted. And so I am very grateful that the Department of Justice decided to put resources into tackling this and saying that this outright bribery is completely unacceptable. And that's part of where I've tried to just center myself. Hey, it this is the kind of thing that people have looked the other way on for a very long time, and they're not looking the other way today. That's progress. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. That doesn't make me feel much better. I also think, like, I'm, what's bothering me, so on this far end of this behavior, this bribery situation, what bothers me is the colleges being like, oh, we were defrauded too, which I'm not buying. You know, the, when these kids were showing up and saying, hold on, I don't pay track. What are you talking about? I don't play track. Then why did it take this guy getting caught for you to do something about it? Like you clearly saw red flags. Where was your process in place to say, why are these kids showing up saying they play sports and then the kids have no idea what we're talking about? So that's the first thing. I'm not buying this whole the colleges were just victims in this. Second of all, I haven't heard anything from SAT who really needs to be talking because that to me puts the whole entire thing in question. Every test taken, every score given. So that's the first thing. Like, I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying that this was I don't want to I don't want this to become and I don't think it's going to that these were just outliers. And what really blows my mind, too, is, like I said, not only were they cheating, not only are there other legitimate but problematic ways rich people get their kids into school, but also there's all this privileged, even if you're not donating to the school and that you could because, listen, this guy was cheating. But there are college coaches that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars so that your kid can get the SAT score they need. Your kid knows how to write the application. So, like, even if you're just full front door forward facing trying to get into the admissions process without being a legacy, without making donations, there's all this privilege at play. And the whole system is so jacked up. And I don't like I hope that this is our moment where we can all go, well, this is not working. And we need to seriously reconsider how we go about college admissions. I think if we want to do that, we've got to go back way before college and think about how we consider parenting. The takeaway for me from this story is how important it is for us to collectively start resisting the constant and overwhelming pull of thinking that our kids deserve the best everything Mm -hmm. in terms of what's possible for us. So it is gross that colleges take money from kids who clearly aren't there to go to college. At the same time, I understand why they do that, because every family that comes through a college visit wants to see a stunning apartment complex for their kid to live in and an immaculate brand new athletic facility for them to work out in. Every parent who comes through wants to hear about the latest cutting edge technology, the professors who are publishing, but are also going to treat their precious babies like their own children. I mean, we prepare for and then bring to the college process as if All of our kids are royalty 
and mm-hmm. life should be laid out on this gorgeous platter for them. And we do that at all socioeconomic levels. That's why this gets dumber as you get wealthier, because what is possible for you gets even more elaborate. But I think no matter what your socioeconomic level, we are all operating in this culture that says you should want your child's life to be successful, counted by they're going to have an easier time than you had. They're going to get more education than you got, whether they want it or not, whether it makes any difference in how they contribute to the world or not. They should live in a bigger house than you did and drive a nicer car than you. And it's all really messed up. And so to me, this is one teeny tiny manifestation of how messed up the way we think about parenting in this country is. And it just is so ridiculous because oodles and gobs of wealth enables you to take it to that place, right? Yep. Well, and it's all, all of that is equated with happiness. It's so messed up. I kept telling my husband, I'm like, if these parents were willing to go to this length, what were they asking their children to do? Like, there's some reports that the children didn't know what was going on, but I still don't believe that there wasn't an intense amount of pressure to get this right and submit this right. Or maybe there wasn't. Maybe this was a situation in which I will do everything for you and I will protect you. I think either is just as equally toxic, whether you're protecting them for everything or putting immense pressure on them to do everything. Both are equally toxic to a child. I couldn't agree more. You know, yesterday I did what you always do. You hear your friends, parents of some of your children's friends, basically, saying something. One of my friends said, well, oh, my daughter has this really big... National History Day project. And I was like, oh, I'd heard about that. Why is, and I said, Griffin, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you sign up for National History Day? And he said, because it's a lot of work and I already have enough to do and I didn't want to. And I thought, hmm, wisdom out of the mouth of babes. Like, you know, it just, he has a, my kids have a very good sense of like, I don't want to do that. I don't need to do everything. Like they're, they don't have the intense drive of like FOMO and I need to play sports and I'm being left out. Like they're really well centered and like, I don't want to do that. And it's okay if I miss some stuff. So, you know, I think kids can be like that if we let them, but like this drive to you have to do everything, you have to participate in all the things, you have to have this perfect resume. It just drives this intense anxiety and pressure, and it's bad for everyone. And let me not make light of the other, I think, really important lesson from this whole thing, which is that at a certain level of wealth, you have a sense that the rules don't apply to you anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear from everything that I've read about this, especially like text messages and emails and things, that there was a real casual attitude about law happening here. People knew Mm -hmm. what they were doing was wrong. There was absolutely no gray about, does this seem okay? I mean, this was just outright cheating. But it's some of what we've talked about with the president before, too. You run in certain circles, You live at a certain level of comfort, and it starts to seem like there's not really anything that can't be available to you for the right price. Yep. And I think that's something that we got to really contend with as a culture, too. And that's why I'm so happy that the Department of Justice is standing up and saying, no, that's not true. We will not tolerate this. Don't you feel like there's probably like somebody somewhere along the line in this decision making process in the Department of Justice? I feel like there's just like one guy who was probably trying to get his kid into college and he was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like was probably like just personal like, no, this is what I'm struggling about. Why do you guys get in for 
by cheating the system. I'll never forget this article I read about a wealth manager at the upper levels. And that's exactly what they said. Like, laws don't matter. Country boundaries don't matter. Path, like, they fly from country to country in their private jets with no passports. If there's any sort of arrest or criminal processing that comes into play, they're just basically like, well, fix it. Like, there's just, there's an idea of, like, the rules do not apply. I operated a different level. I wanted to say before we wrap up, if you are interested in sort of this this role of not just college admissions, but higher education and why it is jacked up and want to just swim around in your righteous fury with me for a little while, highly, highly recommend during the first season of Revisionist History. There are three episodes that I still think about constantly called Carlos Doesn't Remember, Food Fight, and My Little Hundred Million about colleges. And they are so fantastic. I highly highly recommend them if you want to spend some time thinking about higher education in this country and privilege. It's really important, I think, as you take in that information and as you think about, especially my comments about how nice colleges have to be, to understand that kids did not make this problem. This is not about how spoiled the current generation is. And it's very easy, especially if you spend any time going down the rabbit hole of watching Olivia Jade videos to have a sense that this is all about how terrible the young people are. We did this, though. Like, if my daughter reacts the way that Lori Laughlin's daughter reacts to college, that's on me, not on her. It's like the always drives me crazy. With the, oh, ever the this generation wants, they got a participation trophy for everything. Hi, we, we weren't gave buying them. the trophies. You yes. gave them to us. The kids did not go to the trophy shop and order the participation trophies. Oh, it drives me crazy. That's right. And so, and, and it is the pull of we've got to do better by every single generation under this really messed up rubric of what better means. And mm-hmm. I think that's our work to do. Yep. We are now going to start doing some of the work that I think actually does better for subsequent generations. Sarah and I have really struggled with how to deal with the controversy of anti-Semitism in the Women's March, the controversy surrounding Representative Omar, because, look, I think there is not a great cultural understanding of the roots of anti-Semitism in the United States. I certainly haven't had one. I think it is hard to know what the intention was, especially with Representative Omar's comments. I think there's a strong benefit of the doubt given to her for a number of reasons. I think there is some fake outrage in the reaction to her and some manipulation of a whole bunch of circumstances. So this has been a really tricky topic, and we thought the best way we could approach it is to talk with an expert and try to learn something from it beyond the political outrage calculus of how we should feel about one freshman representative in the United States Congress to say, culturally, what what can we learn here? So that's what we're going to try to do today. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. We are so excited to share our conversation with Deborah Lipstadt. She is the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University. Her books include The Eichmann Trial, Denial, Holocaust History on Trial, a National Jewish Book Award winner, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, and Beyond Belief, The American Press and the Coming of the Holocaust. She lives in Atlanta. Her latest book is Antisemitism Here and Now. 
Thank you so much, Professor Lipstadt, for joining us today. We have been really looking forward to this conversation as our audience has struggled through first, really, the controversy surrounding the Women's March and then Representative Omar's comments. I wondered if you could help us all kind of level set on why Representative Omar's comments call forth some some ugly historic prejudices. Well, why she said what she said, that's for her to know. But she did use anti-Semitic stereotypes, memes, themes, whatever word you want to use. Whether she did so absolutely knowingly and consciously or things she had just heard and picked up of that, I have no idea. But first of all, this goes back a number of years, but still she had tweeted about Israel hypnotizing the world. And that speaks, part of the anti-Semitic stereotypes, part of the template of anti-Semitism is that Jews have this unique ability to, despite their, their small numbers, to get the world to do what they want, to control the world, to do it surreptitiously and maliciously. And so the word hypnotizing really, you know, said when people saw that, they, they got concerned. Now she apologized for it and said she had no idea when she used it, what it meant. And I give her credit for that. But then when she flippantly said, you know, it's all tweeted, rather, it's all about the Benjamins baby, Benjamins, of course, being references to to money. It suggests that the only reason people support Israel, the only reason people have an affinity for Israel is all about the money, the money Jews provide to buy that support. And going back to that template of anti-Semitic stereotypes that I was talking about a moment ago, There are three key elements that are always there. Every stereotype, if you're talking about a young, pretty female college student with blonde hair, there's certain stereotypes that go with that. You're talking about an African-American, you want to engage in racist stereotypes. There's certain stereotypes that go with that. Each body of stereotypes has its, you know, has its uh, uh, unique elements. In terms of, say, anti-Semitism, the unique elements are money power, and smarts, but nefarious kind of smarts, diabolical smarts, malicious smarts, and all those three things used it for their own interests and against the interests of other people. So when she said it's all about the Benjamins baby, suggesting the only reason people support uh, Israel is because they've been bought off by Jewish money, it, it hearkened to that anti-Semitic stereotype. And then in quick succession, she talked about political allegiance to another country. Now, there are many Jews and many non-Jews as well um, who are very supportive of Israel. But again, Jews are often accused of caring more for one another than they do for their own country. They're cosmopolitans. They're globalists. Uh, they have international connections, the international Jewish conspiracy, the protocols of the elders of Zion. So in quick succession, or maybe if you, the, the hypnotizing one wasn't so quick, but in quick succession, we had these two comments that really played on anti-Semitic stereotypes. I think that level setting of what the stereotype consists of is so helpful. We had so many listeners reach out and say, I was sincerely unaware at certain points in my life or are or were still very confused about what 
the stereotype is and how these tropes play to that stereotype. So I think that, first of all, is just incredibly helpful. Thank you. You know, I've had people tell me that a colleague, a colleague with whom they're close, with whom they're friendly, has just said to them, oh, I I was going to buy something or I'm buying something, but I managed to Jew them down. Mm -hmm. And the person said, I almost, you know, swallowed my teeth and I didn't know what to do. Some people eventually said something to their colleague and said, do you know, do you realize that that's anti-Semitic? And the person, uh, sometimes the people knew that it had that source, but laughed it off, you know, mm-hmm. oh, come on, you don't take, don't, don't be so uptight or whatever, you know? And, and sometimes they said, gee, I never thought about it. So it, it works both ways. And I think what happens as with any sort of, when we're, we're bumping up against each other, is that you have to have experience with Jews in your life who can lovingly point this out to you sometimes. You know, and that's why I think what we're coming up to with this Omar situation with the Women's March is you have people without those experiences or without somebody they can honestly ask. I, I, hate, to, I hate to correct you on that. I think that's true. I think, you know, it's very hard to stereotype when you know people, you know, mm-hmm. when it's hard to if a kid has no African-Americans in his class or, uh, you know, a, a, a girl has, has never interacted with boys or whatever it might be. That's less likely. Uh, but usually on ethnic, uh, you know, ethnic mixing, it's very easy to stereotype. But once you know people. You can do one of two things. You can either fall back on, oh, but some of my best friends are. Oh, so so true. Which, of course, is that that doesn't help at all, because when you say some of my best friends are, what you're saying is, well, look at me. I'm so, you Mm -hmm. know, give me two points, pat on the back for me for being friendly with some of them. Or I'm friendly with the good ones, but not the other ones, you know, that kind of thing. So and so is not so bad. Yeah, but in this case, in case of both the leadership, the national leadership of the Women's March, and in the case of Representative Omar, uh, she had cl- apparently, and I've, I've you know, heard mm-hmm. interviews and read things, she had some close contacts with uh, Jewish uh, Jews in Minnesota, people from her own district, from neighboring districts. Right. Who have tried? Who had tried and met with her and to educate and to explain and to sensitize. And they they are the ones who are among the most shell shocked because they said she knows this. She knows mm-hmm. this. So um, I don't know. I don't know. But in this case, and I think same thing with the Women's March, these women uh, were people tried to say, hey, wait a minute. If you're making yeah. up a list of women who are oppressed for whom we're marching, um, anti-Semitism is part of it, too. Jewish women are part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I think part of the problem um, and and first of all, I want to make clear that the anti-Semitism we're seeing today in the world comes from both the right and the mm-hmm. left. Uh, Pittsburgh came from somebody on the far right. My my friends who are Republicans, I have a few of those, said to me, you know, oh, that guy hated Trump. You know, the, the murderer in, in Pittsburgh hated Trump. I'd say, yeah, he hated Trump because he felt Trump hadn't gone far enough. He felt the president hadn't gone far enough in stopping the quote-unquote hordes or quote-unquote swarms of uh, brown people coming here from the South or things like that. So he was very much a man of the right. And the fact is, and I speak to you from Washington, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, in terms of terrorist incidents and attacks, particularly on, particularly but not only on Jews, 
is far more concerned in this country about the right wing than the left wing. But we see it from the right and we see it from the left. For some people on the progressive left, for some progressives, their view of prejudice is refracted through a prism. And, and as your listeners may remember from high school physics, a prism refracts, bends light. And that prism has two facets. It has an ethnic facet and it has a class facet. And they look at Jews and they see white people. I, that, and that's ironic because the people on the right look at Jews and don't see white people. You know, those marchers in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. Or the guy in Pittsburgh and others don't think of Jews as white. But if you're on the left, you look at Jews and you see white people, people who can pass. They don't have to acknowledge their Jewish identity unless they were a kippah or, or a Jewish star or something like that. And they see people whom they assume are privileged, are, are economically privileged. Uh, many Jews are, many Jews are not, as we well know. If all you have to do is visit sections of Brooklyn and other places. Um, but look and they see white privileged people, they, people they perceive as white, people they perceive as privileged. And they think, how can these people possibly be victims of prejudice? They have power, and power precludes being a victim of prejudice. Mm -hmm. And then step two, they say, and me, you know, to quote, to quote that great philosopher, female, uh, who was also a female, but the great philosopher, Miss Piggy, moi, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, me, prejudice. Yep. How could I possibly be prejudiced? You know, I have absorbed liberal values with my mother's milk. I have been raised on this. I have practiced this. I have raised my children, my family, my partner, whatever it is. Um, that is who I am. How could you possibly accuse me of being prejudiced? I'm a refugee. I'm a, 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 a woman of color. How can you possibly accuse me of being uh, prejudiced? Ipso facto, your your attacks on me must be have an ulterior purpose, mm -hmm. have an ulterior motive. And we see that playing out in Britain. I go to Britain all the time. I'm there, you know, I don't know, four or five times a year easily. Um, and of course, I follow what goes there. We see it playing out in Britain and we see it playing out on, on the left in, in this country, too. Well, let me clarify. I didn't mean that Omar and the women leadership of the Women's March were confused and lacked the perspective. I mean, everybody watching this trying to make sense of it. Our listeners are very like, I don't understand. And I think the biggest thing we get questions about is I don't understand how to criticize Israel without it becoming a discussion of anti-Semitism, because that's the biggest question we get. That's a great question, and I hear it all the time. Let me say something as explicitly as I possibly could. Were I typing this, I would have it in, in all in caps, italicized and bold. <laughs> Criticism of Israel's policies is not anti-Semitic. If you want to read criticism of Israeli policies, all you have to do is go to Haaretz.com, you know, the uh, liberal, very much respected uh, Israeli daily. Or better yet, go to the floor of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, you know, and you'll hear criticism mm -hmm. of Israeli policies. I can criticize this country's policies and I'm not anti-American. So that's not what we're talking about. And in fact, Representative Omar uh, was not criticizing policies. She 
was criticizing or even attacking American Jews who support or and American non-Jews who support Israel. So mm-hmm. criticism of policies is not the problem because if you can't criticize a country's policies, then you're left dumb. You can't say anything, etc. It's when you take what I like to describe and what I described in my, in my recent book is this myopic view that suddenly the only problem you see in the world, the only problem which causes you concern, the only problem you want to focus on is the Israel-Palestine or Israel-Israeli-Arab conflict. And the only problem, the only human rights issue which which gets your juices flowing is that conflict. And you're not looking at other things. And one has to ask, is there is there a myopia here? Is there a blindness here? What if there is or if there's the single focus? Why, what is Why? it being caused by? Number one. Number two, even if you're going to focus, you focus on that issue amongst other issues, if you see all the wrong on one side. And I'm not saying that Israel hasn't made, hasn't done things wrong. Of course it has. And it acknowledges it. And it's, you know, and as again, go to Haaretz.com and you'll see lots of discussion of that. And, and it would be, it's crazy to say that, you know, uh, that it hasn't. But if you see only the wrongs on that side and you assume that um, if only Israel would do this, uh, everybody could live in peace and then we could sing Kumbaya or something, then then again, you're, you're, you're operating in a, I think, a false existence. It's, it's a false perception. And one has to ask if you're only blaming one side when we so, know so well there are wrongs on both sides, uh, what's going on here? That makes a lot of sense. How can we carefully and and with consideration for everyone find space to question politicians, specifically politicians who are not Jewish, who seem to take a position that maybe they don't even fully understand mm-hmm. around U.S. policy toward Israel. I mean, I think when I look at Representative Omar's comments about APAC, I, I absolutely see how hurtful those comments are. Taking her comments with the best intentions possible in mind, I can see replacing the the set of facts to be a criticism more of lawmakers than of APAC, right? right? That we're in this system where campaign contributions in a transparent way, not a secret nefarious way, but just as part of our system, mm-hmm. people take positions that they don't know much about because of who contributes to them. So I'm wondering how we can frame up that conversation appropriately. Right. I think it's a great question. And it's a question that applies to American politics across the board. I mean, it's really distressing when you hear I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C. It's really distressing when you hear how much it costs to to run a simple campaign, you know, Mm -hmm. with the most basic campaign. It just it just I think it's a complete turning on its head of what the founders intended. And that's a legitimate issue to be concerned about. But some often the concern is only in, again, you know, APAC becomes this nefarious group. The irony is APAC itself is, is not a PAC, despite its name. It doesn't give out money yet. But yet it, it does say to its uh, members, you know, this person is on our side and this person is not. For many years, APAC was really bipartisan and the Israel issue was really a bipartisan issue, both both sides of the aisle. And I think to a great extent, it still is. 
but it has been, uh, you were looking for a word earlier, maybe the word is weaponized. It mm-hmm. has been weaponized and it becomes a way, sometimes you have to think that the person who is saying something is not saying it to make a point so much as to attack the other side. You know, you're not, you're not uh, holy enough. You're not, you're not enough of a supporter and I'm going to attack you on that. And that makes me very sad because I think even though there are many things about Israeli policy, which I strongly disagree with and, and have publicly, and I, in, in my book, I write about it in my articles, I've written about it. I'm not shy about saying that, but I do think that in the same same level, Israel is still the only uh, democracy in the Middle East. You know, I was in Israel two years ago. I happened to be in Tel Aviv on the weekend of the on the Friday of the uh, gay rights parade, and it was amazing. You know, wh- I stood on the side watching people from all over. You know, gay men, gay women, transgender, uh, whatever, but supporters of 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 uh, gay men, women, transgender, uh, marching, and I said. You wouldn't have seen something like this even in Amman, you know, mm-hmm. much less in Riyadh or in Cairo or whatever. Um, and that's not to to cover up the other wrongs, but I think there still is. We're talking about a democracy. We're talking about democracy with a strong connection to America, American policy, you know, whether Republican or a Democratic administration. I think there are many grounds on which uh, to to have a certain affinity and, um, you know, also to acknowledge that we're talking about the only uh, country, small as it is, um, to be a state of Jewish people, not only Jewish people. And there are many um Arab and Druze residents who are full-fledged citizens. And um, I think when the prime minister made some comment about that, he was knocked on his head by the president, by President Rivlin, who said this is a country of Jews and Arabs and all others. But you look at other Muslim countries, all not just in the Middle East, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. And you look for religious minorities that are thriving. Christian Christian Arabs have been fleeing their countries. Their their population is diminishing. Um, you talk to the cops in Egypt, Christians in Indonesia. Um, it's these are not countries that have a great track record of supporting, welcoming, protecting religious minorities. And that's also something I think that is is troublesome. So I think with Representative Omar and even. I don't know. I think the Women's March was just um, problematic on a lot of levels. But with her, I think often what happens with criticism of Israel is it intersects with one of those three templates that you were talking about. Like, I wonder if is there a valid way to say, I think Israel exerts excessive power in our foreign policy, or I think... You can argue that. Absolutely, you can argue that. Uh, I sometimes wonder if it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think at certain points it is true. I think with the Iran deal, that got all mixed up with American Republican Democratic policy. Um, but sure, you can say that things. But when you say it's all about the Benjamins, mm-hmm. uh, what you were attacking were the American Jews who support Israel. And right. you were saying that's the only reason, you know. So... Um, um, I think, you know, if you want to have a, a constructive conversation, please, let's have a constructive conversation that's going on all the time. Um, but, you know, these kind of glib attacks, 
and 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 this this unidimensional focus mm-hmm. um and this this failure to see other issues i think is 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 problematic but a, a constructive conversation let, t- tell me why you think this, that, or the other. Or tell me right. why you think I'm wrong on this. Please, that's 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 we call that education. I think you're totally right. I think that I think the awareness for our audience and everybody who's wondering about this line. I think it is if you if you feel like you have concerns, then they then and they're they're stepping into one of these three areas of stereotypes. Then it needs to be exceptionally careful. It needs to be an exceptionally careful and considerate conversation. That's not how Representative Omar was coming to the conversation. And and, and also, I think it's the media coverage on top of it. They're not trying to ca- cover the complexities of either side. They're trying to pull the quotes that are most incendiary and play those up. And so that they're just not a good platform for the the level of consideration. Right. And these, these are, um, you know, some people said, well, they're young, they're new. These three members, you know, AOC, Talib and, and, and Omar. Well, first of all, I don't really buy that that well, because A, they all got themselves elected, and that's not an easy thing to do. And B, when they vote, the vote doesn't come with an asterisk. Young, inexperienced, you know, gets a half a vote, and the older, more experienced gets a full vote. So um, I think it's really necessary to think about what you're saying and what you're doing. But um, I'm hoping that it gets more constructive. I'm not too optimistic, but one never knows. <laughs> Before we go, I want to ask you, if, if you don't mind, to help us with something that I struggle to reconcile in my mind. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. 
It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We've had this conversation that I found enormously helpful about how it's problematic to kind of center your foreign policy criticisms around Israel, to, mm-hmm. to have that be the your your focus on human rights issues and the United States foreign policy. On, on the other, and I don't think these are necessarily in conflict, but I just want to kind of pull this out and think about it for a moment. There are some very historically unique factors at play when we talk about Israel. Mm-hmm. And there are such unique factors religiously when we talk about Jerusalem in particular. And I wonder how we can appropriately acknowledge all of that uniqueness and all of the ways that it pulls at the many threads of anti-Semitism that, that emerge and carefully consider why it is incredibly important in a unique way, but also not focus on it in a myopic way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes great sense. It makes great sense. And what you are calling for is the intelligent, informed conversation or the conversation that someone is having in order to be informed about what's going on. So I think, you know, nuance, we need to speak with nuance. Uh, When I wrote my book, I worked so hard to and and I'm not a shy and retiring person. You don't know me. Maybe you can tell from here that I'm. You know. I might um, or might not have watched Denial last night, and that's my there next you go, question. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Rachel Weiss, she said she loved playing. You know, a a badass foul mouth woman. <laughs> she, I don't think she said foul mouth, but she implied that that was it. You know, potty mouth. She used the British thing. Potty mouth is what she called me at the Toronto Film Festival. But in any case. In front of a thousand people, no less. <laughs> um, but that's exactly what we're tr- what I'm trying to do is here is to be nuanced, acknowledge wrongs, uh, 
acknowledge shortcomings. But, you know, uh, in the book, I, I, I take on the people who say Israel is never wrong. I take on the people who say Israel is, the, is never right. It's responsible mm-hmm. for all the wrongs. You know, the right, the left, don't just look across the political transom for wrongdoers on the other side, because then I say you're weaponizing the fight. Yeah. Um, look at the people right next to you. It's with those people that you have, as my students would say, the most street cred, um, you know, to, to criticize, to say, hey, wait a minute, I agree with you on lots of things, but not on that. I'll, I'll take the Women's March. I believe 150%, if not more than that, in the aims of the Women's March. It's so necessary. The thought that the fact that we're still marching and still talking about this in, what are we, 2019, is sort of mind boggling. But when the leadership, the national leadership, um, refuses to uh, condemn and, and, and when it criticizes, it does so in such a tepid manner, um, uh, a minister um, who says, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm anti-Termite, you know, Minister Farrakhan. Um, what do you do when you have termites? Who do you call? You call the exterminator. You know, Jews didn't have to ask that question. They know that a question. And that that sent a chill up my backbone. And that convinced me that I had to break with, the. you know, as I'm just an individual, but I couldn't I couldn't affiliate with the National March with the goals, with the objectives. A hundred percent. Not not an iota of doubt. But if you're going to ask me to support you uh, to f- in, in this fight against prejudice or to march behind you uh, in this fight against prejudice, then I have to know you take all forms of prejudice and not just a Pittsburgh. I mean, Pittsburgh is, the, I don't I want to say when 11 people are massacred, an easy case, but it's easy to be against the Pittsburgh. That's that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Um and and to fight it across the board. And, and I think the most important thing um, is that not to think of the fight against anti-Semitism as simply, oh, well, we have Jewish friends, we have Jew- we're Jews, or we have Jewish friends, we have Jewish relatives, therefore we have to fight it. That's good, but that's not sufficient. Or not to think of that fight as, you know, I hate all forms of prejudice, and this is a form of prejudice, so I'm going to fight it. That's good, but that's not sufficient. The, the bedrock reason to be so concerned about these expressions of anti-Semitism on the right and on the left is that no healthy democratic society can afford, can tolerate having a a conspiracy theory like anti-Semitism in its midst and be considered a a healthy society. When you see anti-Semitism thriving, you can pretty much be guaranteed, and maybe I don't even have to qualify it, you can be guaranteed that you're seeing the decay of democracy. And that's the reason why it should be a matter of concern to everyone. We're interrupting the interview just to give a little context. We shifted a bit and started asking Deborah about her past experience with a libel case in Britain. She was sued by a Holocaust denier for libel in Britain, and the legal status there is very different. They made a movie about it. So we wanted to talk about that with her as well. 
So I did watch Denial last night. I really enjoyed it. For those of you, you should all watch the movie. It's about Deborah's life, which I kind of just want to ask what it's like to get a movie made about your life. But it's really fascinating. And I remember the preview coming out and being like, I wanted to, I want to see that. But I guess it never came to my theater and it fell off my radar. So, so I was so glad that life brought it back to me. But um, it's about your court struggle in Britain when you were sued by a Holocaust denier for libel, because Britain's libel laws are very different than ours. And I just had to ask how you feel about this new conversation with Clarence Thomas and President Trump seeming to be interested in changing those libel laws based on your own personal experience. The libel law in England puts the burden of proof on the defendant. In America, if someone says you libeled me, they have to prove you libeled me. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, in, in Britain, you have to prove the truth of what you said. And it's it's a terrible thing because A, authors, journalists, uh, politicians are all the time being dragged into court to prove the truth of what they said. And it really is a, uh, I think it's a severe constraint on, on free speech. We also have something else in this country which goes with it, and that's the public figure defense. Mm-hmm. That a public figure, someone who willingly puts themselves in the spotlight, a politician, a police officer, an author such as myself, I put myself out there and someone criticizes my work, someone writes heaven for fend, a bad review of my book, I can't go sue them because I've put myself out there. And the mm-hmm. Supreme Court ruled that free speech overcomes that that right. If you're going to willingly put yourself out there, then you can't sue for libel on what you've written about or said. And I think it's 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 one of the great things of our system. And when people suggest changing it, whether it's the president or a member of the Supreme Court, um, it's very disturbing. And and I it just well, it sort of convinces me, given some of their other positions, that it's not the way to go. It's it's a big mistake. Well, I thought what was so brilliant and so relevant about the way your legal team handled the challenge They didn't say this trial is going to be about whether he's telling the truth and whether the Holocaust happened. We're not going to put the Holocaust on trial here. What we're going to do is put him on trial as whether or not he's a real historian, because putting the Holocaust on trial lends legitimacy to the questions. And I just was reading something about vaccines that, you know, the second you have an anti-vaxxer to Congress and say, or you ask the, you you know, the Center for Disease Control, well, is this valid? That just asking the question lends validity of the concern. And I thought that's so true. It's like the internet has done this for everything. It's led validity to these concerns. You know, I was recently on a panel in Brussels at an international conference with two other people. One is a specialist in vaccines. He worked at the CDC and now he's at Emory. He's one of the world leading specialists in childhood vaccines. And the other a person who works on AIDS and AIDS virus at, at Emory at our Yerke Center, uh, um, our research, one of our research centers. And we were all talking about it as the same phenomenon. I was talking about deniers. They were talking talking about anti-vaxxers mm-hmm. and people who say AIDS is not a virus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we were all saying it's the same thing. And the bottom line is some people say they're facts and opinions. I say otherwise. They're facts 
their opinions and their lies. Mm-hmm. And you can't debate a liar. Debating a liar is trying is like trying to nail a blob of jelly to the wall. Right. You just can't do it. And you can't give them the status that, that they deserve. You have to expose their lies, but I'm not going to give you that level playing field. David yes. Irving, this guy who sued me, dragged me into court because he wanted that level playing field. And we just exposed him as a liar. We showed we we followed his footnotes back to the sources and showed there was nothing there. There was no there there. There there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, that that all his claims were based on lies, distortions, made up evidence. You do can do the same thing with vaccines. Go back to the sources. You'll see the original studies, there's no there there. And kids are getting sick and diseased and vulnerable people are being hurt because of this. It's dangerous. Yeah. And I think that, listen, I think that's a valid takeaway from 2020 because I think back to 2016 and I think we gave Donald Trump a level playing field and Hillary Clinton did the best she could in that debate exposing the lies. But there's just something about being on the platform to begin with that lends validity to the beliefs. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed your work and the movie, and I cannot thank you enough for coming on today and helping us sort this out. I am certain that this is not the last conversation that we'll have about anti-Semitism, but I feel like we have a good, solid foundation for future discussions and really appreciate Professor Lipstadt being here and all of the listeners who have engaged us on this topic. It has ignited a lot of passion from people with various perspectives, and we really appreciate those perspectives. We understand why it's an emotional topic, and I'm just so grateful for Professor Lipstadt sharing with us and with lots of other people. She was on her way to talk to some lawmakers in D.C. as we were winding up our interview to help us all get a better grip on the historical underpinnings of anti-Semitism in America today. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics, and until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.